Our text for today comes from John 5, 39 to 40. You study the scripture diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right. Well, it's good to have everybody here this morning. So before we hop into the message, I just have two quick um, pastoral things I need to get through. The first is that tonight is our uh, Pathways Gathering. If you have been with us for probably a little over a year, uh, you've heard of one of these. Um, This is just an opportunity once a month that we're going to do throughout uh, 2019. Yes, that's the year it is. Uh, Where we're just going to set aside a little bit of time to uh, pray for one another, to to have an extended time of worship, uh, to hear a very short talk from me, very short, and uh, to receive communion together. That's uh, the main intention of our Pathways gatherings. Tonight, uh, every week, we're, every month, we're going to have a, fo- a specific focus, and tonight, our focus is based uh, slightly around a service that John Wesley used to do. If any of you are familiar with church history, you know who John Wesley is. Uh, called a watch night service. We're not going to call it that. But it was a service that he did at the beginning of every year that was a kind of a, a rededication, an opportunity to kind of cast your eyes out into the future and see um, and rededicate your life both to uh, the things that God wants to do in and through you in a new year, but also to kind of refocus, to recenter. And so uh, I read through one of these services and I thought it was really beautiful. And so we're going to kind of walk through that together tonight. And then we'll obviously have communion and oppor- opportunity to pray together. Um, and just be a church family. So that's what we'll do tonight. So that's the first thing. The second thing, as Ashley said, the funnest thing you will do all year. Funner than the Super Bowl. Funner than sledding. uh, Funner than, I don't know what else. It's it's very fun. It's called our annual business meeting. Uh, So this year's business meeting is pretty important, actually. Uh, if you're visiting with us, you are lucky because you get a little bit of uh, insight into our community. But two years ago, our church entered into a process of what the called revitalization. And in that process, we stepped in under the oversight of our denomination or our network of churches. And so the two years have passed, and our community has met all of the benchmarks that we need to meet to become an autonomous church again. So this is very good, Right. So, at our business meeting in two weeks, we're actually going to vote to become an autonomous, self-governing church again, all right? Which means, yes, we can hoop and holler all we want, uh, which means that we need uh, to vote in new bylaws and that we need to uh, do a couple of those uh, business items in order to uh, have that happen. And so, <clears throat> so over the next Uh, So not over the next two weeks, but in midweek this week, probably Wednesday or Thursday, if you're a member of our community, if you're already a member, uh, you'll be receiving an email that has uh, the the proposed bylaws that we'll be accepting. So you get those a week and a half before our actual meeting, and you can feel free to read through those. If you're the type of person who doesn't have an email, we'll have some of those as paper copies in the the office for you. So you can read through those and uh, so that you're prepared when you show up to our annual business meeting. So Uh, That is what will happen there. We'll step out from being a church that is dependent on network leadership and step into becoming an autonomous church again, uh, which is a wonderful thing. So uh, that's what it looks like. And if you have any questions about that, 
um, ask Mike. No, uh, ask ask me after church. I would love uh, I would love to a- answer any questions you have. Uh, this is a really great process, and it's actually not as difficult or businessy as it sounds. It's pretty easy. So, uh, if you have any questions, feel free to ask me. Um, and oh, last thing: if you're not a member of our church, you are more than welcome to be at this meeting at two o'clock. I know two o'clock on a Sunday is when many people take naps, me included, uh, and that's why we planned it thin so you'd be sleepy. No. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we, uh, but everybody's welcome to this church, but if you're a voting member, we will have you sit in an actual section so that we know who's voting. All right? Who had fun with that? Okay. See, uh, Rich and Carol are always good for a hoot and a holler. Okay. All right. Let's get into the meat of it this morning. So when I was growing up, I attended Sunday school. Does anybody know what Sunday school is? Uh, which, like in many religious traditions, was where little kids get instructed about uh, their faith, right? Uh, Sunday school, in my tradition, was the place where kids were dragged, kicking and screaming in some cases, to church by their parents, and then sat down in a very little chair and talked to about Jesus. That's usually what it looked like. I remember when I was growing up, I used to think, if I just pretend I'm asleep, my parents won't wake me up and t- make me go to church. So I would, it never worked, surprisingly enough. Um, this is common in a lot of religious traditions. When I was growing up, I had friends who went to Hebrew school before football practice in middle school. Right? If you were, if you're, uh, if, I'm sure many of you had friends who are Catholic who went to CCD and confirmation classes. The only difference, kind of a, a difference though in my tradition growing up was that we did this on Sunday morning in Sunday school. And often on Sunday mornings in Sunday school, we sang Bible songs together. You probably, if you, if you grew up like I did, you know them. They're rattling through your head right now. And one of the most famous Bible songs that we sang, I'm not really sure what the title of the song is. I think the title is just B-I-B-L-E. Uh, if, when Elliot was little, my son Elliot, he used to just sing B-I-B-I-B, which is not correct. Um, but we let him continue to do it because we thought it was great. Um, I, I'm just going to sing it for you this morning because I think you need that. All right? Not the whole thing, just a part. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. Don't sing it. It's my turn. Uh, <laughs> I, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Right? Thank you. I have a beautiful voice. Uh, so it's one of the foundational ideas that you're taught in children's church growing up, isn't it? That your life should revolve around the Bible, that it's a foundational book, <clears throat> that it's a special book, that it is a sacred book even. And many Christians refer to the scriptures this way. They call it Holy Scripture. Christians believe that this book that we call the Bible is a repository of God's wisdom for his people. And so rightly for two millennia, roughly two millennia, Christians have been basing their lives and their practice about following Jesus largely around the words of Scripture. And it is, in fact, one of the core values that Christians hold, that the Scriptures are God's special communication to God's people, that that God, in some real and true sense, speaks through the Scriptures to His people in order to help them live lives and to know what and who He is. Uh, and this is a core value of, uh, for our church as well, surprisingly enough. If you, uh, if you go on our website or if you see those slides that roll before church, you might read this. There's a picture of me with my hand like this. 
in the, in the one that says life rooted in Scripture. But the value is that our lives would be rooted in Scripture. And we say this, we affirm that the Scriptures are God's special communication, and though diverse in structure, form a coherent and authoritative narrative or story that provides the basis for our understanding of who God is and how we should orient our lives around Him. Now, I don't know if that makes sense to any of you this morning. It might be just some church words, right, cobbled together about the scriptures. But it's my hope that this morning in this series we're calling Foundations, which is all about some of the core values that we hold as a community, we can dive into this statement a little bit and into the scriptures a little bit and kind of uh, suss out some of what we believe about the scriptures and why I think the scriptures become this vitally important thing in the life of the church. Something that is actually fairly neglected in our day, even by those who follow Jesus, because I think part of the problem is their ubiquity, that they're all over the place. So, it's difficult uh, when you're preaching a message to preach a message about the scriptures. It's far easier to preach a message from the scriptures. Um, this, here's a little pastoral inside baseball for you. So, uh, so you will have to follow along a little bit because the scriptures aren't very self-referential. They don't talk about themselves that often. They talk about God most often. And so uh, as we go through this, it's my hope that we see some glimmers and some angles as to what the scriptures are, how they should function in our lives, and why they're important. And hopefully a little bit, I hope you'll learn a little bit about uh, how we can better incorporate the scriptures into our lives. So that's the hope for today. All right? All right. So in, in I really want to talk, I really want to center this message around the three words that you read in that statement uh, about a life rooted in Scripture. And the three words are Scripture, surprisingly enough, Scriptures, narrative, and life. Scripture's narrative and life. So we'll walk through those three words this morning. The first is the Scriptures, the Scriptures. This is the part of the message that is uh, informational. So if you don't like knowing things, you don't have to listen to this one, all right? See, that was a subtle, that was a subtle thing to say. All right. So, because the truth of the matter is, is that knowing how we received the Bible, knowing what it actually is and how it got to us is important if we're going to read it well. And it's also important if we're going to be informed readers of the scriptures. Very often when we just see the Bible as being uh, a divine thing, which it is, right? It's, it's God's special communication to us, but we don't actually see how it was transmitted or how it came to us. We, uh, we're not as informed of readers as we should be. And so when, I, when, so when we talk about the scriptures, what we are talking about is not a book that descended from the sky one day in, in the form that you have it in front of you. And while we readily admit that the Bible is God's special communication to humanity, we also acknowledge that it is through the hands, the minds, the language, and culture of human beings that the Holy Spirit worked to bring this book into existence. And so it bears all the hallmarks and all the oddities of those people, cultures, and languages as well. It, it can be a strange book sometimes because I don't know if you know this, but people are weird. It is a God-inspired, authoritative, and holy book with human fingerprints all over it. Now, when a Christian person or a pastor talks about the scriptures, what we are talking about is the 66 books that make up the Bible. 
probably the, this is the Bible that you have under the seat that's in front of you right now. So basically, there are 39 Hebrew and Aramaic books, and they run from Genesis to Malachi. And then we have uh, 27 New Testament books, and those books were written in Greek primarily. That's the Bible, right? That, those are the 66 books of the Bible. Some Christian traditions, such as Catholics, have a few more, Mac the Maccabees and things like that. But for the most part, the Bible is the 66 books that run from Genesis to Revelation. That's what we're talking about. Now, uh, when we have the Bible, what we have in the Bible is, we call it a book, right? But what we have in the Bible is really more like an ancient library than it is like a book that we think of today. When you think about it, because the Bible is multiple books written by multiple writers, separated by, in some cases, scholars kind of disagree about this, but between 15 and 1700 years, right, from the first writer to the last writer. It took a long time to get the Bible to the place it is today. And then it had to be compiled, right? And then it had to be put together. For the most part, the Old Testament, the, the book of the Bible, the, the half of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, was the Bible that Jesus and his disciples were quoting when they were talking about their scriptures. And that, that Bible was kind of handed down to the New Testament writers. So the, the early church, when the early church is talking about the scriptures, what they are talking about is the, what we call the Old Testament. This is the scriptures that they had. And the New Testament, the, the part of the book that we call the New Testament that begins with the four Gospels, was written by early followers of Jesus as they attempted to build this church that Jesus instructed them to build, as they, as they began to really think back about wh who Jesus was and what he did and what the significance of it all meant, they, they wrote down uh, these books that we call the New Testament. And then, after a period of time, the church began to use these books. They, they began to see them as sacred things, as, as a repository of, of God's special communication to them. So they began to put together lists of what, uh, what books were from God, what books were inspired, and what books weren't. And this took a little while, actually. It wasn't an altogether quick process. Now, the New Testament, as we see and understand it today, was used and probably compiled together far earlier than this in terms of the life of the church. But the first complete list that we have in history of somebody going to getting together and writing down, this is the complete list of the New Testament books, was by the church father Athanasius, and that was on East, in, in an Easter letter that he wrote every year to the church, and that was in the year 367. So that's the first written re record we have of the, of the Bible being compiled as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, that's the story right there. Those are the scriptures. So that's how we got the book that's in front of you, kind of. That but it, it doesn't explain the kind of Herculean effort it took to get the Bibles that are in your hands and under your chairs here today, right? That's how we got the book compiled, but to actually have got them in our hands and under our chairs and in our homes and on our phones, even more had to happen than just that. Because if you, if you, if you know the history, and this should be obvious, um, they didn't have things like computers or word processors or smartphones in the day in which the Bible was compiled. Because while the Bible was complete in the year 367, 
many people, everyone, didn't have access to it until much later than that, to be honest with you. Because, because no one had the technology that we had today. Copying the Bible was incredibly difficult. Scribes had to sit hunched over manuscripts with rudimentary materials in dimly lit rooms and copy this thing by hand in order to get it passed down from person to person, from church to church. You know, uh, and these scribes were diligent. Many of them were, were faithful people, but it was very difficult, and it was very, very expensive. You know, and because of the expense, because of the difficulty of translating, not translating, but uh, reproducing the Bible, it, it was something that only, ch- only big churches, only big churches, and very, very wealthy people had in the ancient world. It wasn't like everybody was carrying a Bible around, actually. Uh, and really, the Bible, as we have come to understand it today, is, didn't happen uh, until much, much later. It was two instances, actually, that made, the, made it possible for us to have the Bible that we have today. And those two things, the first was the invention of the printing press in 1440 by Johannes Gutenberg, right? Everybody's probably familiar with that. It's probably the most important invention in human history, period, before the iPad, that is. Uh, And then Martin Luther, Martin Luther translated the Bible into common German, at least the New Testament in 1522. And then I think he did the Old Testament, so the whole Bible in like the 1530s. But Luther did this interesting thing. So Gutenberg made it possible for more people to have the Bible and made it less expensive to own a Bible, right? But Luther did this other really important thing that was kind of revolutionary at the time. He said, everyone deserves to have the Bible in their common language. Because before this, the church kind of had a monopoly on the Bible, and they, and they refused in many cases to translate it into the language of the people, so that if you were a German person or, or if you were a French person, you probably didn't have the Bible, or a Germanic person in that time, you probably didn't have the Bible in your actual language. You probably, uh, when you went to church, you heard the Bible read, but you probably heard it read in Latin out of a book called, a Bible called the Vulgate, which sounds like Vulcan, but it's not. The, <laughs> sorry, that was a bad joke. That was a really bad joke. The, and, what, and what Luther did was say, everyone deserves to have the Bible in their language, their own language. Everybody deserves to, if they can read, which wasn't a given at this time, to read it for themselves. And the printing press and Luther's desire to make the Bible uh, readily available to those who can read it changed the game entirely. And from that point on, people had Bibles. And, and the church saw it as a value to get Uh, Bibles in people's hands in their own language. Before this, it really was not the case. And so today, I have five Bibles, right? I think literally I have five of them. Some of you probably have more, right? We have Bibles everywhere. Bibles, as I said earlier, are ubiquitous, aren't they? They're on your phone. They're anywhere you, there is no moment in the day in, in, in America where you couldn't find a Bible very quickly, whether it be on your computer or on your phone or probably in your house. They're everywhere, and that's good. That's a good thing. It's important that, that people have access to the Scriptures. It's a beautiful byproduct of, 
of this progress of making the Bible more available to us. But there's also a downside, I would say. This just sounds funny for a pastor to say. And uh, a scholar, a guy named Leslie Newbegin, who happens to be my, my, my best friend, uh, helps us understand this phenomenon of why maybe the ubiquity of the Bible has uh, lessened its importance in our lives and in our culture. Now, I don't often read quotes that are this long. This is from the, uh, the very first paragraph of a book that he wrote about the Bible, but I'm going to read it because I think it really puts into context uh, the way that uh, some of the problems that come about when something is so familiar to us that we don't value it. Something that's so familiar to us that we don't value it. Here's what he says. He says, for at least a thousand years, the Bible was, for practical purposes, the only book known to the people in Europe. They didn't have it in their hands before the days of printing, of course. They knew it through the teachings of the church, through its readings, its preaching, its liturgy and sacraments, through the cycles of the seasons of the Christian year, through art, music, and architecture. The story told by the Bible was the story by which people understood the meaning of their lives. And for the, and for the centuries, even after the invention of printing in Europe, in the mind of the 15th century, it was the only book most households had. Most households today have a Bible, but do people read it in the way that they read, that they read other books? Do they read it as a whole, as a story from beginning to end? I think not. Most of us treat the Bible as an anthology of helpful thoughts to which we may occasionally turn and from which we can obtain comfort, guidance, and direction. And even in our reading of the Bible in church, we tend to look at only very short passages, which reinforces the impression that the Bible is a collection of nuggets of wisdom from which we can choose what we find helpful. But in that case, of course, it is not the Bible itself that decided what is worth reading. We decide in advance. The Bible is not our authority. The Bible is not our authority. So, here's the question. Should we go back, right? Should we go back in time? Should, uh, before this process of making the scriptures available to all of us? I, I definitely think that's a no, right? I'm, I'm a real solid no on that question. But the story of the Bible, the, narr the narrative of the, of the Bible that, that Newbegin is talking about here, that was incorporated into people's lives, I, th I think that's a really appropriate assessment of the way, in general, in the West, in modern society, people engage with the Bible. Most of the time when we read the scriptures, we are not reading it as one big unified story Rather, we are viewing it, in Newbegin's words, as an anthology of helpful thoughts, right? How many of us, in a stressed moment, have gone to the Bible and just thrown it open, trying to find something that would help us cope in any given moment? Now, I'm not saying that's inherently wrong, right? That's, there's nothing particularly wrong about that. But if that's the only way we engage with the Scriptures, we're not handling it as it was intended to be handled, Rather, the Bible was meant to be engaged with in the same way that any storybook is intended to be engaged with, as a narrative, as a story, as a complete and unified whole. And when I say story, I don't mean untrue. I just mean, a tr uh, I, I mean true in the truest sense of the term. But I mean, it has an arc to it. It has a focus. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it must be read in the light of that beginning, middle, and end. So how do we read the scriptures as, 
what scholars call narratively. How do we read it as a story, as a whole? Because I don't know about you, but I can't read the Bible in one sitting. I haven't tried, and I'm not gonna, right? I don't want to do that. That's, that doesn't sound fun to me. But the truth of the matter is, is we are called to read the story of the Bible as a unified whole and to see our own lives as a part of that story. Not to see the Bible as just a helpful tool where we can pick out some nuggets from God and then learn a couple things so that I can get through the next day. Rather, we are to see the whole of our lives placed within the context of the scriptures, and then, we are, and then our actual lives are giving more, given more meaning and purpose because of that. So how are we supposed to read the Bible as a narrative? How are we supposed to read the Bible as a story? The first thing I would say is that we need, to, we need to understand the major benchmarks, the major plot points in the story of the Bible. So if you were to ask me, Nick, what's the story of the Bible? How do I, how do I understand it from beginning to end? I would say there are some big rocks, some big benchmarks, some big narrative points that you need to hit and understand. First is creation, right? The world was created. The second is the fall, that we're sinful. The third is Israel, that God called the people of Israel out. The second is Jesus. I mean, not the second, the fourth. Hello. <laughs> the fifth is redemption, the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Then the church. And finally, new creation. What the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation is new creation. Every story that we read in the Bible should be seen through the lens of that overarching structure. We cannot take one story or one narrative or one, or one snippet out of context and think that it doesn't fit into that whole story. If we, if, and the, the process of becoming a more, uh, a more astute Bible reader is the process of learning how the individual pieces of the story of the Bible fit into that overarching narrative. This is what it means to be, uh, this is what it means to grow in our understanding of the Bible. So one way of thinking about this way of reading the scriptures is if you think of a tree, you can take a section out of a tree, right? You can take a, what's this, horizontal, right? A horizontal section out of a tree. And what you will see there is that you're kind of going against the grain of the tree, right? You'll see the circles on that section of the tree that they're, they're, they're circles. You're going against the grain. And that's a, that's a valid way to read the, the scriptures. We have to read the stories about the Corinthian church. We have to read the stories about David and Goliath or Samson or Jesus, right? And we have to read them in that way. But we also need to read those stories of the Bible with the grain of scripture, with the narrative arc. And so there's another way of seeing it. If you were to, if you were to take a tree and you were to cut it in half, you would see the grain running, right? Up and down. They're both valid ways of reading the scriptures, but I would argue that reading with the grain of scripture, with the story of scripture, is the most important way to read it and to really understand what it's saying to us. Reading, reading with the grain of scripture is a way that we understand how the individual stories of the Bible are linked together and how the individual stories of the Bible, when linked together, become the story of the whole cosmos. This is an important thing and how they become yours and my story. And that changes everything. When you see the story of the Bible as your story, as the story that your life is folded into, it changes everything. Now, if you're saying to yourself, Nick, um, I'm a smart person, 
and I just heard what you said earlier in the scriptures, and you said that this ancient library of religious books was written over thousands of years by numerous different people in three different languages. How in the world could it be a unified story? Well, I'll say two things to that. First, this is the way that the people of faith, both Jewish people who had the scriptures before Christians, before there were Christians, and Christians have always viewed the scriptures, right? They've always viewed it as a unified story. And the second thing I would say is that we read the scriptures this way because this is the way that Jesus read the scriptures. If in our teaching text for today, in John 5, verses 39 through 40, Jesus says this to the scribes and the Pharisees when he's a little frustrated with them. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Jesus says everything you read in the Bible is one big story, and it's all about him. And this is the way, and this is the, a way of reading the scriptures that helps us understand him better if we read it as a story, as a complete whole. But it also helps us, and it, and it helps us see Jesus more clearly, actually. Because when we read the early interpreters of the Bible, when we read those, those early, those first leaders in the church, they all read the scriptures this way. They all read the scriptures with an eye to what those scriptures were saying about the person of Jesus. They saw Jesus absolutely everywhere in the text, in the Bible. And a great example of this is if you read a little book that we hand out to all of our parents when they dedicate children, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Now, I read the Jesus Storybook Bible to my children sometimes when they let me. Sometimes they don't want to read that book. Um, but when they let me, I read it to them. And every night I read it, I go, oh, man, I should probably preach that. <laughs> I, I have this sneaking suspicion that like 45 to 50 percent of pastors who have children my age who read their children the Jesus Storybook Bible take like 60 percent of their messages from it. It's a really beautiful little uh, book about how all of the scriptures tie into the person of Jesus and the whole arc of the narrative, the whole story of the scriptures is all about Jesus. It's a beautiful example of seeing the whole sweep of Scripture as being tied together, as being unified in the person of Jesus. Reading the Scriptures this way actually helps us see, understand, and love Jesus more because we see him in all the nooks and crannies of the story. And when we see that story unified together, it takes on significance. And it, will, uh, and it will convince us, reading the scriptures this way, I'm convinced, reading the scriptures this way will convince us that a life uh, soaked in the scriptures is the best way to live. And so that leads us to the third point, which is life, life. This is what uh, the scholar Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, the deceit, the lie that the devil, uh, that the devil consists of this that he wishes to make man believe that he can live without God's word. Thus, he dangles before man's, man's fantasy a kingdom of faith, of power, of peace, into which only he can enter who constructs, uh, who consents to the temper, uh, man, I should have read this before, uh, temptations, and conceals from men that he, as the devil, is the most uh, unfortunate and unhappy of being since he is finally and eternally rejected by God. I don't know if that was the right quote. Anyways, uh, <laughs> the reality of the matter is that, is that the scriptures become this incredibly important thing in our lives when we read the Bible this way, narratively, when we read it as a unified story. 
When we read it this way, we begin to see that the scriptures are this unbelievably valuable thing to us because we see it as the source of our lives. It becomes the narrative that gives our life purpose and meaning. You know, everybody has a narrative. Everybody has a story that they tell themselves about their lives. If, uh, one of the things I like to do as a pastor when I get coffee with somebody for the first time is I just say, tell me about your story. And what they inevitably do is they start with their childhood, right? And they tell me about their growing up, and they tell me about their parents, and they tell me about their first, if they went to church growing up, they tell me about their first church experience, and then they go on, right? They tell it as a story, right? This is what we all do. We all talk about that one time we were playing baseball and we got knocked out when we were 12 by the baseball on an early practice in the morning, and then we stopped playing baseball. At least that's just me, right? Um, we all tell those stories because those stories and those benchmarks and that narrative art gives our lives coherence and significance. And the Bible can become a story that gives our lives, the narrative arc of our lives, coherence and significance. And we see this in the Bible. In the book of Nehemiah, there's this very fascinating passage of Scripture. Now, Nehemiah was a, a leader of the Jewish people. When the Jewish people were taken off to exile, so the Jewish people, if you were with us if you, uh, during the month of December, you heard a little bit about this. That, that there was a point in the history of the Jewish people when they were taken away from their homes. They were taken off to exile. They were taken away. Their religion was kind of squashed. The temple was destroyed. The walls of their cities were knocked down. And everything felt like it was lost. And eventually they're allowed to come back. And one of the guys who comes back to help lead them in this process of rebuilding their lives, rebuilding their city, rebuilding their temple is this person named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah begins this process of instituting the establishment of the church calendar again. Not the church calendar, but the Hebrew calendar. And they begin celebrating all the feasts and all of the, uh, all of the holidays that were celebrated in their calendar year something they had, hadn't done for years and years and years, nearly a generation. It's something they hadn't done. And on this one particular uh, day, uh, this one particular holiday, this one particular feast, what, the, what was supposed to happen was that the leader would get up, the, the religious leader, would get up and read the scriptures out loud to everyone. And this had not happened for this group of people that had returned from exile for a very, very long time. And so in the book of Nehemiah, in uh, chapter 8, verses 8, we hear about what, what this was like for this people after being separated from the story that gave their lives meaning and significance. They've been separated from this story. They've been ripped from their family. They've been taken away. They haven't heard the scriptures read. They haven't had the scriptures in any way, shape, or form for so long. And then comes this day when somebody builds a platform, stands up on top of it, and just begins to read the scriptures out to them. And here's what happens. It says, in beginning in verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the high priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have, uh, have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites called all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of the food to, the, uh, to, to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. 
they hadn't heard the scriptures read for years and years and years. And when somebody gets up in front of them and reads their story to them, they can't handle it. They just start weeping. They just start weeping. Because their whole lives now make sense again. Their whole story makes sense again. Their whole reason for being makes sense again. And this is, the, this is what the Bible wants to be for us. The Bible wants to be a story within which our lives make sense, within which our lives cohere. This, God's story is the story that your life was meant to be placed in so that it makes sense. And the truth of the matter is, is we were created to see ourselves as a part of this story. We're created for that. And coming to the scriptures and understanding the ark and understanding that it all talks about Jesus, coming to the real realization of that reality is like coming home again. It is like coming back to something that you were familiar with that you never know you actually needed. When's the last time you opened the scriptures and they meant that much to you? When's the last time you read something in the scriptures and you said, within that book is my very life, is the story with which that, that sums up my life, is the story that makes everything else make sense? Not very often, I think. Because too often we look to it as a thing that serves us rather than seeing our lives as submitted to it. The scriptures can and should become our very lives. The story that our very lives are summed up in and make sense in and cohere within. And this can happen. It should happen. But the only way to do that, the only way for that to make sense, is really two things. The first is that we need to make ourselves familiar with that story, with those scriptures. And part of the way we do that, because the Bible is readily available to us, is that we pick it up and read it right? That's the first way. And the second thing, and this might sound strange, but the second thing is we read it together as a church. We come together on days like this and we hear the story afresh and anew every Sunday or every Sunday night or every time we gather in homes and we read the story together. We hear the words of scripture read just like the Israelites in the days of Nehemiah. We gather together and we hear the story and we see the ways in which our lives connect to that story. This is what they are. This is what they should be for us. And as we do those two things, as we read them for ourselves, we learn about them, right? Because if you look in that story of Nehemiah, right, there was some, there was ex some explaining to do, right? People didn't re always readily understand the scriptures. And so there is, a, there is an element of study that is involved in this process. But coming together as a community and learning what it means to, to fold your life into the story of the scriptures, into the story of God's redemptive plan for the whole world, to understand that all of the stories cohere, make sense, and point to the person of Jesus. Understanding all of that is a process of gathering together and of going out after we gather together and reading it on our own. Those two things together help us do that. And so I wanted to end today in the most practical way possible. just wanted to give you some resources, some resources to understand and learn the scriptures better. So the first resource is obviously be together, right? Gather together around the scriptures. You were never meant to read the scriptures all by yourself all the time. 
until the year 1400, that wasn't how anyone read the scriptures. They always read them in community. So we can't only read the scriptures in community. But it is by ourselves that we can gain a greater understanding of what that means. And I wanted to throw some resources up on the screen for you this morning. So I believe we have a slide with a few books. There they are. Ha. So three books for you. All right. The first is, a, is an oldie but a goodie. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee is a scholar from uh, our church tradition who, who wrote an incredible book about how to read the Bible if you're interested in learning about that. The second is a book called Blue Parakeet by a scholar named Scott McKnight. It's very accessible. It's very good. And the third is where I got that quote from today, a guy named Leslie Newbegin. Uh, he wrote a book called A Walk Through the Bible, where he actually walks, through the, walks you through the narrative of the Bible with all the big plot points, and he helps you kind of see how the Bible coheres together and makes sense. So if you're interested in diving into this a little bit more, all three of those books are really great places to start. But the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, if we want to be uh, better readers of Scripture, if we want to allow the Scriptures to transform us, if we want our lives to cohere and make sense within the context of the Scriptures, the best thing we can do is read it in community, is read it with other believers, is hear it read, and engage it with our hearts on our own, and then come from that place by ourselves, and then come out of the place of reading it on our own, and talk to other people about it. This is why community is so important, and this is why we have to talk about the Bible, because otherwise you can come up with some weird stuff when you're by yourself early in the morning. I promise. I promise. All right? All right. So just one last thing. Um, the daily reading of Scripture, the daily reading of Scripture is a natural rhythm that all of us should build into our lives, all right? So whatever that looks like for you, whether it's a weekly Bible reading plan, whether it's, a, whether it's what I do is I mostly read the Psalms every day, uh, but uh, whatever that looks like for you, there's many options, and if you, you're interested in some of those, you can come talk to me after church. I'd love to point you in the direction of some. But the daily uh, rhythm of folding the story of Scripture and folding the stories of Scripture and folding the truth of Scripture into your life, I promise, will illuminate the person of Jesus from the Scriptures and allow you to follow him better, all right? So it's, it's, it's an innate uh, practice or story that all, all Christians need to fold into their lives, all right? All right, I think that's good. Did we cover it? All right, I got a thumbs up. So uh, let me pray for you as we go, and then... Uh, and then we'll hopefully uh, be back tonight to pray and worship God together and pray for one another. All right? All right. Father, we love you. And we ask that you would help us see the scriptures well. We pray for illumination, God. That for those of us for whom the Bible is kind of a cold, dead, austere thing, that you would liven it up for us. That we would see the truth and the beauty of the scriptures. That we would begin to see our lives cohering within its narrative and that the truth of the scriptures would become an ever-present reality and guide for us. God, as we go from this place, would you give some of us who don't have a hunger for the scriptures a hunger for the scriptures? And would we be a people who uh, base our life and practice around what we learn about Jesus from this book? We pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. So go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.